Let's bow in prayer once more, please. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the privilege of coming together to worship you. And now as we open your scripture to study it and hear from you, we do ask that you you yourself would be our teacher. Help us to receive your word, to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Help us to believe you. Help us to honor you in how we think about your word. And Father, we pray you would use this look at your word to improve our lives and give glory to yourself. We commit this time to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So you may have noticed that theological questions are a good bit harder on Monday morning than they are on Sunday morning. When you're together with your like-minded friends, the answers just flow so easily, and and we're all sure we've gotten to the root issue. The practical application of Scripture in life beyond our gatherings um, often has some challenging details that we hadn't thought about. Our... uh, In the section of 1 Corinthians that we're going to look at today, Paul is answering some practical questions that the people in Corinth had asked him about in their last letter. They were struggling with how to apply their new faith to some specific situations in life. They weren't getting those answers that roll off the tongue so easily in a Sunday school class because now things are happening. And what do you do? It's the kind of stuff that seems easy when you're listening to a sermon and not so much when you're actually dealing with it. When it comes time to apply it to your life, new questions come up and your answers from before suddenly don't make so much sense. And so they asked Paul some kind of hard questions, very practical questions, and questions that have application to our lives because the underlying principles are always the same. We face challenges in applying the Scripture, in applying what we think we know. Things come up, and we go, wait a minute, do I know anything anymore? I I don't know. It's not always as easy as it sounds among friends when everything's theoretical. Now, in the part of this book that we looked at right before we stopped to talk about the resurrection for a few weeks, Paul was dealing with questions related to marriage. Do you have to get married? Some people were saying you do. Particularly a lot of the Jews were saying, that's God's will for you to be married. Just do it. Find somebody you think you can stand and get married. Um, Or is it actually better not to be married? Some people were saying it is. They were saying you're, you're holier if you don't get married. In fact, that, that's, that's how you really prove you're serious about following God. You just don't get married. And some of the ones who thought that way were even saying it's so much holier not to be married that if you're a Christian and you're married, you just need to get a divorce so you can start being holy. And that's how far off people were. And Paul addressed all of that in the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 7. It was no small undertaking, but he thoroughly dealt with it. And then in the text that we're going to look at today, he deals with one of the things that was 
driving some of that foment about marriage and a lot of other problems in the church. There's something in play here that goes beyond specific questions about marriage. There's something under the surface, and many people maybe wouldn't even realize that it's a factor. Sometimes you have to stop and ask, what am I not seeing? Why is there such wide disagreement among Christians on this question. What's going on to drive that? How can genuine believers be this far apart? What's going on in the human heart that's causing these differences? Well, there was a problem in Corinth that was playing into these disagreements about marriage and a lot of other things that were going on. It's something that we need to be aware of so that we can check ourselves. It's a human problem that has remained significant throughout the centuries. People have a strong tendency to be discontented. Now, there are a few people who manage to put that out of their minds, and they're up most of the time. But in general... People have a pretty strong bent to be discontent. We we seem to have an inclination to be displeased, unsatisfied, and ill at ease over some of the details of our lives. We have an inclination to be disappointed that things didn't go the way we had hoped they would go. And we can get into that and start to pine away for the way we think things ought to be. Now, we should acknowledge, as we start thinking about this, that part of what's driving that can actually be positive, can be a good thing. Human beings have a certain drive to do better. We seem to have been created with a certain interest in bettering ourselves, bettering our lives, making everything nicer, can be really good. We admire this trait when we see it in other people. You know, They want to succeed. They want to know more. They want to understand more. They want to do better. And we like that, and we want to be that way. We have a drive to pursue good things. We have some energy for that. And that can be great. But that tendency can also turn sour and become a very bad thing. Our desire for for better things, if we don't manage to make whatever it is we're after happen the way we want it to happen, can pretty quickly turn into ingratitude and envy and bitterness. It can lead to strife among people. It can lead to all sorts of wacky conclusions. So if we set our sights too high, or even if we're not setting them too high, but what we wanted is beyond our grasp, we've got these limitations we can't overcome, we can become very negative about life, we can become sour and discontent and bitter and jealous of others who have what we can't get. And the problem gets even worse when people try to apply bad theological ideas to the problem. Religion will magnify every problem if the theology is off at all, and that's what happens. 
If somebody tells you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise, a lot of people are preaching that. If you buy into that, and then healthy, wealthy, or wise tend to be out of your grasp, (laughs) it's going to be even harder because you had the wrong expectations. Or if you have an idealized view of what Christian marriage is supposed to look like, and your marriage isn't like that, you might spend a lot more time thinking about how it ought to be then you spend thinking about being a better spouse. (laughs) If you've embraced that popular theology that says Jesus will make your life better in this world, you're going to have a great job, you're going to have a great family, you're going to have good health, you're going to feel good all the time, you're going to be up all the time, and then it doesn't go well. (laughs) It's just a lot harder if your theology's off. And there was some of that going on in Corinth. They had the wrong expectations about what the Christian life was supposed to look like, and so they were not content with the way things were turning out. And a big part of the problem was that that people were assuming it has to be a certain way. If you're a Christian, it'll be this way. It has to be or you're not godly. If it's not turning out that way, you must be lacking in faith. You must be doing something wrong. God must be mad at you for some reason. So some of the stuff in this text is a little outside of our experience, but I think we'll find the core issues very contemporary. We'll read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24 today. Scripture says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're also able to become free, rather do that. For he who who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, at first glance, this part of this book might not seem very relevant to us. There aren't a lot of arguments going on right now about circumcision. And the only people who have slaves are criminals. (laughs) We call it human trafficking. It's slavery. It's evil. And everybody knows that now except the criminals. (laughs) And so maybe that doesn't sound like anything we need to be talking about, but the principles behind these specific issues definitely do apply to us. And there are some very practical admonitions that we can draw out of this text that we need to think about. And the first one is this. Remember that God determines your situation in life. If anybody ever told you you can be whatever you want to be, 
they are very confused or a liar. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. It's one of the most absurd things people say to their children. You cannot be whatever you want to be. You can't. Nobody can. If some guy is, a, is five foot two and clumsy, he will never be a professional basketball player. No matter how much he prays, no matter how hard he works out, it is not going to happen. You, you, you know, God sets your path in life. He gives you certain limitations, and you can't overcome them. Now, we should actually delight in the fact that God determines our situation in life. He has created each one of us for a purpose. He has equipped us with what we need to achieve everything he has called us to do. He calls us to specific things in life that fit perfectly with the way he has made us, and he promises future rewards to everyone who will trust him and be good stewards of what he has given. So verse 17 says, Only as the Lord has assigned each one, as God has called each one, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Paul saying it's the same for every Christian. It's the same in every church. It's the same everywhere. Be what God made you. And stop trying to be something he didn't make you. Conduct your life according to the way God gifted you and equipped you and created you and called you. The New King James Version renders that verse but as God has distributed to each, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Now, that word distributed, is a, that really captures something that we need to understand. God is given out, he's given out talents and abilities and intellect and gifts. He's distributed those. They're not the same for everybody. You've got different capacities, different levels of energy, different aptitudes. And God has called each person. We should be thrilled to have a custom-fit calling and equipping by our Creator. Unique from every other person who has ever been created. You've got a custom situation here with the Creator. So we need to remember and trust the one who gave us what he gave us. You got the talent you got. You got the energy you got. You got the skill and the aptitude. That all came from him. We ought to rest in his wisdom and realize that he made us in a way that is perfect for what he's called us to do and to be. Now, theoretically, most of the time, we're fine with that. We like the idea that God has given specific blessings to us. I mean, I got my own blessings. That's pretty cool. But there is a, a part of this that we struggle with. Since God has given unique gifts, he's given the other people unique gifts too, and that means that other people have blessings that you don't have. It means that when God gave you your gifts and talents and intellect and capacities, he set some limits beyond which you can't go. 
there are things that you're really bad at. Just like everybody else, there's some stuff you're just really bad at. And that's fine. We all have that. But what if you're really bad at that thing you really wish you were good at? You really wanted God to give you that, and he didn't. God made every one of us in a way where we could do some things really well and really not be able to do other things well at all. This was a point of victory for me in life when I realized I really stink at some stuff. And I need to start relying on people who are actually good at that stuff and focus my energy on something where God gave me some small measure of aptitude. Everybody else knew I was stunk at stuff all along, but I finally figured it out one day, and life got better because there are people who are good at that. Let them do it. So our our, our focus in life should involve what Paul describes in verse 16 as how the Lord has assigned each one or distributed to each one and how God has called each one. And he says, in this manner, let him walk. Figure out how God made you and live your life accordingly and be content. Now, Paul gives some practical examples that were issues in the first century Not so much right now. Verse 18, he says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Some were saying that to be a real Christian, you you men got to be circumcised like the Jews were. Others were saying circumcision doesn't do anything, doesn't matter, it's just legalism, don't let that creep in. Some were even saying, if you've had that done, you need to have it reversed. But Paul says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, I have to tell you, this verse 19, for weeks now, has just intrigued me. This may be the most interesting thing I've noticed in Scripture this year. (laughs) Because in one sentence, Paul tells us that what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And in the same sentence, he tells us circumcision means nothing. There were commands about that. That part of the law doesn't mean anything for a Christian. But what's important is keeping the law keeping the commandments of God. Now, there are a lot of arguments about how to shave that, and I'm not going to argue any of them today. I just want you to think about it. Clear the point, though, is Paul was not an antinomian. Paul was not saying, just throw out the whole Old Testament. He says what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Clearly, he's excluding the ritualistic commandment of circumcision And yet he doesn't toss them all out. It doesn't matter whether a man is circumcised. 
It counts for exactly nothing in your walk with the Lord. And yet there are, there are commandments that must be obeyed that do matter. Those are the big deal. And you can spend some time thinking about how to shave that. But Paul's point here is clear enough. Don't get hung up on some legalistic understanding of what you have to do to your body to be right with God. That's not how it works. And in verse 20, it says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Be content, without getting bogged down in legalism, be content with whatever life is like when God called you. Don't let anybody tell you what you have to do to be a Christian. Don't let anybody tell you that to be a real Christian, you've got to exhibit gifts you don't have. Don't get caught up in that stuff. God determines your standing in life. There's a second practical admonition to draw from this text. We need to remember to trust God in the details. Verse 21 says, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. Do not worry about it, New American Standard says. Literally, it says, Let it not be a care to you. Now, those are remarkable words, and not what we might expect to find in the Scripture. If you were to sit down and give it a lot of thought and make a list of everything you could think of that might hinder your ability to live well for the Lord, every twist of circumstance, every hardship, every situation in life, and then you were to Prioritize your list to see what, what might be the hardest situation in which to live well for the Lord. Seems to me that being a slave would have to take the top slot. Being owned by another human being who's going to control everything you do for the rest of your life. Tell you when you can eat, when you can sleep, what you can do, where you can go. You might put a lot of things on your list of challenges for walking with the Lord. They've all got to be below that. Health problems, difficulties in marriage, whatever you might list. What's a bad employer compared to somebody owning you? And yet here, Scripture says, even if you were in that situation, don't worry about it. Don't let it become a concern for you. Now, the natural tendency when facing any hardship that's making it harder for us to walk with the Lord is to chafe against whatever it is and to expect God to change it. <laughs> and then, if enough time goes by, maybe get a little bit bitter when God doesn't change it. I mean, who wouldn't expect God to bring about a change if one of his dear children is owned by another human being? How can you expect a slave to be content? And yet here it is, staring us in the face. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. 
Even that can be part of God's good purpose in the life of one of his children. Now, many would be quick to argue against that thought. Maybe even many among us would go, now, wait a minute. We would tend to think that such indignity could not possibly be God's will for us. That can't be his purpose. Satan must be winning. We have to do something. This is a desperate circumstance. So it's worth facing a really hard question. Can it be God's purpose? Let's start with easy ones and get harder as we have. Can it be God's purpose for one of his children to have a really lousy job with a difficult boss? Can that, can that be God's purpose for somebody's life? Can it be God's purpose for two people married to each other to suffer through some really hard times and try to figure it out together and just not have marriage being what they want right now? Is it possible that God might bring that into somebody's life and use it for good? Can it be God's purpose for one of his own dear children to be a slave of another human being? It's funny. We, when it's somebody else, it's like a mild heart attack being some, a heart attack someone else had. We have a different perspective when this is somebody else. We rejoice in the life story of Old Testament Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers and was faithful to his master and was promoted to the very highest position among the slaves until falsely accused by the master's wife, and then he was thrown in jail without a trial, without a charge, without a release date. Was God in that? Joseph certainly thought so. Years later, Joseph said this to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He said this in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. We like that lesson until we're the ones suffering. Surely God has something better for me, something more comfortable than this, something where the blessings come early instead of after years of hardship. But if your calling is difficult, if it's less than optimum, if you're in a season of life that is just grueling and you're starting to really get upset about it, remember. God knows what he's doing. If God can say to a slave, don't be concerned about it. He can certainly say it to every one of us. And we ought to be able to obey that too. Do we trust him? Or do we just chafe because we're not getting our way? We don't see his purpose. and We want him to explain it to us. 
Well, the first part of verse 21 takes care of that very common problem, telling us not to be concerned about these hardships. That that keeps us out of one ditch where we become bitter and ungrateful because life's not going the way we wanted it to go. When it's not all comfort and ease and joy, we need to trust God and not be fretting about our problems. But there is a ditch on the other side of the road that some people drive off into. And those who go that way make a very different kind of mistake. So there's one more admonition we need to draw out of this text. And that is, remember to take the opportunities God gives you. We mustn't take the idea of contentment to the point where we never even try to grow or where we we refuse a better opportunity for the sake of having a hard life because somehow that might be holier. We live with this misguided notion that God wants us always to be miserable, and so good things come along and we go, no, that's not for me. The point here is not to take this idea of God setting the course of your life any farther than God takes it. God did not create you to be an automaton. You're not a mindless robot working through a program written by somebody else. God did set boundaries for your life. You can't go outside those boundaries. Sometimes he moves them, but you still can't get outside of what he set. We have to make good decisions within the boundaries that God has given us. We all have to make decisions. And so if God gives you an opportunity for something better in life, make a decision to have it. (laughs) It's not an evil thing to have a good thing. Don't tell yourself it's not God's will for you to enjoy anything. If he gives you an opportunity, act on it. Some people have this misguided notion that it's holier to be miserable. That's that other ditch we want to stay out of. So still talking to people who are Christian slaves owned by some other human being, and right after Paul tells them not to be concerned about that situation, the rest of verse 21 says, but if you're also able to become free, rather do that. Don't be fretting about your situation if you're a slave. But if you can get your freedom, take it. Don't think it's holier to be here. There's nothing to be gained by being a slave unless that's where God wants you. And if he wants you there, you won't be able to get free anyway. So go for it if you get a chance. It's not holier to be a slave. It's not holier to be miserable. It's not holier to show how good you can do under misery if God gives you something better. Now, it applies to slavery, but it certainly applies to the the lesser trials that we all endure. Stay in your lousy job with a good attitude until you get a better offer. It's not even wrong to look for the better offer. Just keep a good attitude as long as God keeps you in that situation. Now, the point that Paul is making in the rest of this paragraph 
is that wherever you are in life, whatever you're doing, you belong to the Lord and you can live for Him in any circumstance. Look at verses 22 to 24. For he, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Paul is saying you belong to Christ no matter what. Be content with that. But then if you get a chance to do something better, do it, and then be content in that. If you're a slave, you still belong to the Lord, and in Him you have a kind of freedom that unbelievers don't have, no matter their status in life. But even if you're free, you're a slave of Christ. You've been purchased by Him. You belong to Him. Remember who you are and be content. All this comes down from the fact that we were bought with a price. That's emphasized here. The price was the blood of Christ shed on the cross to pay for our sins. And by that price, Christ purchased for himself all of the people who would ever trust him with their salvation. That fact drives everything else about the Christian life. We belong to him. Now, I was grappling with this all week. You know, you bought with a price. Don't be slaves to men. But he just said, if you are a slave, don't be worried about that. And I thought, you know, the point here is our relationship with Christ. How do we even express that? That's, that's the big deal here. We're not just a piece of property to him. We're his slaves. And so I, I'm, I'm grappling with that. A slave is property. I mean, we're slaves of Christ. We were slaves to sin. What? So this morning, I'm reading my devotional in the checkbook of the Bank of Faith by Charles Spurgeon, and it was so appropriate to that situation that I'm going to read it to you now from April 11th. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 34, which is about the new covenant. and says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And then Spurgeon writes, truly, whatever else we do not know, we know the Lord. This day is his promise true in our experience, and it is not a little one. The least believer among us knows God in Jesus Christ, not as fully as we desire, but yet truly and really we know the Lord. We not only know doctrines about him, but we know him. He is our Father and our friend. We are acquainted with Him personally. We can say, my Lord and my God. We are on terms of close fellowship with God, and many a happy season do we spend in His holy company. We are no more strangers to our God, but the secret of the Lord is with us. This is more than nature could have taught us. Flesh and blood has not revealed God to us. Jesus Christ has made known the Father to our hearts. If then the Lord has made us know himself, is not this the fountain of all saving knowledge? To know God is eternal life. So soon as we come to acquaintance with God, 
We have the evidence of being quickened into newness of life. O my soul, rejoice in this knowledge and bless thy God all the day. The strong emphasis of our passage for today is to be content, no matter what the circumstance. Even if you're a slave, don't fret about that. You can trust the Lord no matter what is happening in your life. That point is emphasized in verse 17 and in verse 21. And the paragraph ends with yet another strong reminder when verse 21 says, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. We have to learn to trust God with the way he made us, with the opportunities he has given us in life. Now that strong emphasis is moderated by the last part of verse 21, telling us if we have a better situation, let's take it. But the emphasis being so strong on being content ought to tell us which one of these is the greater danger to most people. There are a lot more people who struggle with discontentment than are missing opportunities because they think it's holier to do without them. Most of us need to be reminded to be content with what God brings along. A few of us sometimes need to be reminded to take a blessing when it comes by. We don't want to make either mistake. We don't want to drive off in either ditch. And the key to avoiding both problems is trusting the Lord who made us the way he made us. Be content with who he made you to be. He has a purpose for you. He's giving you opportunities that fit that purpose. He's he's whittling away at your rough spots through the circumstances of life because that's his purpose. He sets your boundaries, and you can trust him with the details. Live your life being what God made you to be. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Spirit's power we could take this passage to heart and be content with whatever comes along, even while asking for and praying for and pursuing good things. We pray that we would be able to trust you with our situation in life, with how you made us. Lord, I know some in our midst are, are not doing that. They're not, they're not even at peace with you. We beg your mercy on them. We pray you would open their hearts to your truth. Show them that even in their case, you have a good purpose for their lives. They need to stop fighting you and be reconciled in Christ. Lord, we do pray you'll be glorified in each of us as we respond to your scripture. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.